Tonight, we are going to talk about God's will for your life, purity, the issue of sexual morality and how it destroys people. And we might be thinking, wait a second, is this a youth group? Uh, I was a youth pastor in a previous life, and there was like the, year, the yearly you know, purity talk everyone had to have. And no, we're not. And yet this is an issue for every person of every age and of every age group. And this is part of the issue when you have just the next text. The next text decides what the topic is, not me. And so that does kind of help. You're like, well, this is just what we have to preach because it's there. Right? And it really does matter. For example, one survey I read said that one quarter of all Google searches are for pornography. One quarter. 25% of people admitted that their primary reason for using the Internet is for pornography. Um, the recent generations struggle with pornography from a very early age. Um, the average age of the first internet exposure to pornography is 11 years old. Uh, 15 to 17 year olds who, who admit who admit to having hardcore pornographic experiences is 80 percent. Um, those who are 8 to 16 year olds who have viewed pornography of li- online while doing homework, 90 percent. 71% of teens say they hide their um, pornographic viewing online from their parents. 52% of all mobile viewing was done online, but that's an old study, so I'm sure it's much higher now, now that I think about that. And, and the reality, though, is, even as we listen, like we live in a very sexualized culture. It just looks what's accepted. But it's been bad before. We'll get there in a moment when we talk about the Roman world and what they did and experienced. Tim Challies, the Christian blogger and writer, argues and hopes for that pornography will one day be seen as cigarette smoking was seen. You know, cigarettes used to be glamorized. Everyone did it in in movies and all the most famous people did. But now society is like, wait a second, this is really unhealthy and destructive. And there are all kinds of restrictions applied and smoking is ostracized culturally. In the same way, pornography right now is seen as sitcom jokes, something to be laughed at. It's considered normal. But as we start to see some of the horrible trends and the effects that it has, Praise God, and hopefully it will change. We're praying for that. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8 addresses this sexual immorality. It states what is going on with this. Um, just so you know, the outline of the book, where we've entered the part of the book that's dealing with the what to do's. And before that comes chapter 1 and 2 through 3. So one through three is all about what God has done. Chapter one is God's thanksgiving to the Thessalonians. Chapter two through three is Paul's ministry to the Thessalonians. And chapters four through five then is his exhortation to the Thessalonians. So he's trying to encourage them. So we saw previously, and I have a little cool little slide to show you on this, but it's not working. So, oh well. Um, Cool little slide that shows you how gospel indicatives lead to gospel imperatives. We're not just a people, people who follow Christianity aren't just people who just say, ah, wag my finger at you. This is what you should and shouldn't do. No, we're saying in light of what God has already done for us, his great work of forgiving us on the cross, 
because of his death, therefore we are to be a certain way. We don't have to be, we get to be. And that is the beauty. So we're into this section, having said all the ways that God has freed us from sin, how he has loved us, and therefore, how should we respond? Now, Paul showed his great love for the Thessalonians over and over again. He showed them his love for them. And then we get to chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. It says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What we're trying to talk about is how the church, how the church reminds people of purity. How the church reminds people of purity. How are we as a church supposed to remind each other and the world of what purity is and why we should do it? And, and verses, we, we talked about verses one is saying Christians are to live holy and Christians are to please God. That's why we are holy. And then God is commanding us through Jesus to be holy. So then verses 3 through 6, if you're taking notes, you're trying to say God's will for your life is not a question. God's will for your life is not a question. We don't have to say, what is God's will for my life? It says very clearly right here. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, he starts off in the first part of verse 3, telling us we have to know God's will. This is how we dig in to these things, to know God's will. Now, the reality is, ah, thank you. Great job. Great job. Thank you for figuring it out there. Um, we, are, we are here to know God's will. Uh, Romans 1 says all people see the glory of God and we suppress it under unrighteousness. We have God's moral code written on our heart. We know what we should do and we're like, eh, No. Now, we read God's word so we can understand who God is and why we should trust him and not trust our own natural desires. Now, just theology hats for a moment, okay? Just imaginary, think about it, because God's will is twofold. We have God's will of decree about what will happen, or people call it his will of decision. God says what will happen. Um, for example, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So it's, Ephesians 1 says, it's to his eternal purpose, according to the counsel of his will, for his glory, he has ordained whatever comes to pass. So whatever is supposed to happen is according to God's will, and it will happen. It's his will of decree his will of decision what he says is going to happen is going to happen jesus responded to that will 
in Matthew 26, saying, If it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but you will. Right? He's like, whatever you want, God, let that be. Now, on the other side, we have God's will of commandment or his will of instruction. Sometimes people call it his will of disposition. These are not the wills of this is going to happen, but this is the things that should happen. Moses said right after that, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed to us and to our sons forever. Deuteronomy 29, 29. So there are some things that God says, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I expect from you. God's will is always clear. He wants people to be holy as his law and his gospel says that, lays out for people to be holy as he is holy. And so we frequently wonder, well, what's God's will? Where should I go to school? What job should I pursue? Who should I get married? What church should I go to? Uh, where should my family put down roots? Uh, many big decisions in life. And most of those decisions are, are not things that God says specifically, here's what we should do. We'll get back there in a moment. Because there are those things that we should pray about and think about. But then there are plenty of things we don't need to pray about. We don't need to seek counsel. We need to obey what God has said. And, and this is one of those. Where God says, in the verse part, If you are a Christian, his will for you is to be different. His will for you is to be different. To be sanctified. Sanctified. It's a word that we don't use in English too often anymore. But it means to be set apart. To be different. And God sets us apart when he saves us. Hebrews 10 verse 10 says, By that and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Christ Jesus once and for all. So we've been sanctified in the past, but as we reviewed with the kids this morning, sanctification is also the ongoing transformation, making us more righteous, more like Jesus. Now, one particular way of sanctification is what he lays out here, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from immorality like others. I sometimes, this is why it is fun to know some of the original languages and to like dig into the words. Because sometimes like the ancient people just had amazing word pictures. The word abstain uh, is an image of something dropped from a ship to keep it from going ashore. Or it's also used of people who are rowing against the tides to keep going into shore. As the waves are trying to push the ship inward they're having to work either by an anchor or by muscle to pull themselves away from the natural push. That's what it means to abstain. Isn't that a great word picture? It gives you the idea. And this is what he's saying to do, is that a Christian, someone who has been saved by Jesus, are trying to hold themselves back from any type of sexual sin. God created Sex. Notice it doesn't say to abstain from sexuality. It says from sexual immorality. God created the beauty of sexual intimacy 
to exist within a committed husband and wife for life. So any other sexual activity outside of that is sin, is immorality. Hebrews 13.4 says, The marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. See, that's why God's commands, and we'll, we'll get here when we talk about the Romans in a second, that God's commands concerning sex are not killjoys. It's actually to protect people, to save them, and to keep them for their joy. And, and this is why there are some things that are destructive. As Romans 1 brings out, God gives the people over to dishonorable passions the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise give up natural relations with women and are consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The issue of homosexuality and its disregard for God's creation. Uh, I, I preached a message on um, Exodus 20, verse 17, how you're not supposed to desire your neighbor's wife. You know, do not lust after your neighbor. So you can go back and listen to that if you want to hear a little more explanation of why that is the case and how that is God's good gift. I just want to move us on because he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just say, avoid sexual morality. He gives a positive of saying, have self-control unlike others. Avoid immorality and have self-control unlike the world. He says that you may abstain from sexual morality, verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. It's such a good thing. The Bible never just says no. That's like trying to stop a raging bull coming after you. You stand in front of it and you just go, no, stop. What's going to happen? Bull's going to just knock you over dead. So if, if you go to rodeos, what do they do? If someone is riding and they get knocked off, they don't just stand there. They don't just run. In fact, they get rodeo clowns, right, to, to distract, to give him something to run out instead. There's always another object. So Paul follows the example the Bible always gives. It says, here's a positive to go after instead. Here's the put on to correspond with the put off. And I know I made the joke about youth group earlier because it always gets like, oh yeah, here we go, repeating it. But that, that's exactly what Paul says he's doing here. He says, you know, that each one of you know how to control your body. You, 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 you know this. Um, he, he said again and again, these things that they already know. In verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You know we told you this already, but we're saying it again because it needs to be said. This message that they know needs to focus on, they need to know how to gain control of their own body. And I love that command because he doesn't say gain the control of someone else's body. Control their clothing. Control their outfit. It says, control yourself. Pastor Yuri has done a great job. You've got to go back and listen to it on his exposition of First um, Timothy 2, talking about just the, just the struggles. And you're like, you know, men, it could, it could be any kind of clothing. Even women in burqas can cause lust. But he's saying, control yourself. I remember 
a, an older gentleman telling me, he's like, you know, I may be too old to order the menu, but I'm not too old to look at what the menu has to offer, referring to gazing at beautiful women around. A- and Paul doesn't allow that, does he? He says all people need to control their own body. And he ends that sentence with a preposition. That's that word in. It's like, how, how, did, how, what, how do we do that control? What does that control look like? Holiness and honor. Seeking holiness builds self-control. Seeking to be like God. Seeking honor, respect, esteem gives honor. It gives self-control. In his book, You Can Change, Tim Chester writes, thank you, if you can get it there. Tim Chester writes, people often ask me, how can I tell whether a desire is sinful or not? How can I know whether I desire something too much? I answer, by pointing to Jesus' image of bad fruit growing from a bad tree. You discover that a desire is sinful when it produces bad fruit in your life, disobedience, anger, anxiety, and so on. When you see that bad fruit, trace it back to the idolatrous desire of your heart. You get that? When when any desire starts to produce disobedience to God's word, anger, anxiety, things that are against God's word, we're not in holiness and honor. And we know we're not having the self-control that we should. And so those are warning signs. Hey, watch out for this. In verse 5, then, that's held in contrast to the passions of the Gentiles. He says, Not in the passion of the lust like the Gentiles, who do not know God. Now, he's writing to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is Greek territory. They are not, they're not Jews, they're Gentiles. So why is he bringing up this thing of how the Gentiles live? Well, there's different ways to think about it. Some people think that he's referring to them as like spiritually Gentiles versus spiritually righteous people. It's just a, another way to phrase it. Um, it could also be a phrase specifically addressing Roman culture. Paul doesn't usually address the Romans specifically, but they're the dominant Gentiles at the time. So he might be doing that. And Thessalonica was a prominent city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was one of the most important harbor cities, the port cities. And it was a major trade route. And Rome's sexual morality was very problematic, to say the least. Uh, History hats on for the moment. Let's just think. History. Listen. Um, Let me describe some of what was existing in the time of Rome and what were their passions and what they considered appropriate. For example, um, same-sex relationships were common in the Roman world. What made them actually acceptable was age and status dynamic, not love. One piece of literature of travels to the afterlife says the Isle of the Blessed is where all the wives are shared in common without jealousy and all the boys submit to their pursuers without resistance. See, slaves, prostitutes, and boys were seen as legitimate outlets for a noble man's sexual desire. In an empire of around 70 million people, there were between 7 million and 10 million slaves. And it was thought that if 
what we would rightly call sexual abuse of slaves was stopped, the whole empire would devolve into lust. That, and so they're like, we have to keep this going. How about women, right? So for women, sorry, ladies, if you were in Roman time, you were expected to stay a virgin until you were married and stay loyal and faithful to your husband your entire life. Adultery was a crime against a man only. And so it was, mind, it was like mind-blowing, like, wait a second. Like, like, it's actually as, we'll get there in a second, but in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that the wife has conjugal rights over her husband as well. It's a mutual relationship. To the Romans, they were like, what madness is this? Wives are not for that. Prostitution was everywhere. So much so that if a man had sex with a prostitute before marriage, he was still considered a virgin, but not the woman. Um, and if he had prostitute with a pro- or if he had sex with a prostitute during marriage, it was not considered adultery. But if the woman did, eh, sorry, you're in trouble. Um, there were basically two main rules for sexual morality in the Roman world. One, avoid adultery with a married person. And avoid being the passive receiver in a homosexual relationship. Beyond that, everything was okay. Everything was supposed to be accepted. Like the the sexual escapades of young men were stuff of legends, um, provided they were not with married women. The Roman world had very bad passions. Again, especially for women. Women just got the, the bad end for this. And young boys got the bad end of this. Now, the the Christian message came in with a hammer of good theology, with a different view of what God has given us to be, to change that. The idea of porneia, that's what this word sexual immorality is. So it's not just porn, though we get that term from it, but porneia was very expansive. Like anything outside of a committed for life relationship. And so it was thought Christians were going around saying, there's no such thing as harmless, innocent outlets for male sexual desire outside of marriage. Christianity present a sexual ethic that was very radically new, especially towards homosexual behavior and the abuse of boys. One historian argues that Christianity led to a new understanding of the freedom of the will itself. See, This blows our minds. In Christians' morality, humans possess moral agency over their sexual desires. Even men could exert and can exert control over their desires and feelings. No one is at the just mercy of insatiable appetites. Morality matters more than desire because we believe that people are made in the image of God. And one of the fruits of the Spirit that is a description of God himself is self-control. So people of every tribe, tongue, nation, color, language can have self-control. Self-control is possible. Imagine that. And everyone in the Roman world was just like, what? This is crazy. What do you mean? And a lot of women and poor people were like, wait a second, you mean I don't have to make excuses for him? You mean he can have self-control? 
This makes so much more sense. Because verse 6. Verse 6 explains that ultimately this issue of self-control is about filling the second great commandment. Loving others. He says, the will of God is that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. This matters to your neighbor. Transgress, it means to exceed a limit, to defraud someone. It's taking from someone what you should not have. And this includes whether they know it or not. It also means it's, it's wrong to exploit, right? It says there in verse 6, no one transgress or wrong, no one exploits his brother. This could be to steal a man's wife or daughter for sexual pleasure, is to steal from him what rightfully belongs to him. It could be stealing from a sister. God considers it sinful to take another believer's Sanity, safety, purity. So much so. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 6 through 7, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes Matthew 18 6 through 7 when one exploits a fellow Christian especially it breaks down trust between brothers and it destroys the body of Christ it hurts people see God wills for purity for a good reason and we can get caught up too often in the wrong will right I heard a seminary professor once talk about he's like the guy's you're all wondering about what God's will for your future is, your, whatever your future ministry is. And he's like, I, I got to say something to you. I don't care if you end up in Kalamazoo as a missionary or in Timbuktu. And, and there's probably a good choice between the two of them. If you have a choice to make, you'll need to pray. You'll need to weigh out the decisions. He's like, maybe if it's really good, even you'll flip a coin and just decide. He's like, but then there are some life and death decisions. If you see someone in need across the street and you walk on pretending not to notice, what will you do? Will you be dis- Do you need to pray about that or do you need to just obey God? When there is a temptation that God has said no to, he's like, God's definite revealed will is directed towards you to say no. These are life and death decisions. God's will is clear. Like, so many decisions matter. But the ones that are clearly laid out, we should focus on most. Sexual immorality is a matter of life and death. Now, because of that, we have to strive for holiness to make good decisions. Um, John MacArthur has famously said, I don't know if you can put this up there. Um, there's a couple things to say. The Bible tells you what God's will for your life is. There's a list of being saved, being spirit-filled, being sanctified, being submissive, being suffering. And if you are saying thanks, then just do whatever you want because you're going to make a good decision. 
It's like worry about what's important. Worry about what God lays out. You'll do the right thing if you do. Like, if we are trying to decide who to marry, how to live, where to live, but we're not caring about this passage, we're missing. If we are, if we're doing these things, we'll make the right decision. But I also want to say self-control is worth pursuing for our mission to the world. It's interesting we talk about how the Roman world changed. Historians say Aphrodite was slain by Christians. Aphrodite, the god of love in the Greek world. The Christian sexual revolution was codified into law in the reign of Justinian in 527 to 565 AD. Um, Homosexual relations was considered a crime. Pedophilia was outlawed and prostitution was strongly opposed. And how was it done? The church, they preached, they wrote, and they had a rigorous system of membership and discipline where they were trying to say, here is what God says, and here are God's people to do this. We need to preach this truth in this crazy world at times. Yes, some people look around, they're like, wow, things have gotten bad. You know what? It was far worse. And Christians change by just getting up and saying, I understand, but this is what the word of God says. And we have to do this with authority. These are not our opinions because the second part of this, verse 6 through 8, says God's will for everyone cannot be questioned. God's will for everyone cannot be questioned. Why? Well, the second part of verse 6. The consequence of someone's rejection is God's vengeance. If someone says no to what God has said, God's vengeance comes. The consequence of someone's rejection is God's vengeance. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and we solemnly warned you. There's a natural response that happens when someone ignores God's commands. He's decided the world. If you want to, Proverbs You can turn there with me. Proverbs 7 lays out perhaps one of the most convincing cases to try and convince people to avoid. It's all about the seductress in the streets and the fathers trying to sell the son. Watch out for the lies that are there. And we could take much time walking through it all. However, I'm just going to highlight verses 21 through 23 for the sake of time. It says, with much seductive speech... She persuades him. You can easily change that around if you're talking to a daughter. He persuades her. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast. Till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. The young man is like a dumb ox. He thinks he's going to pasture, but he's really going to slaughter. And like a hunter, she's entrapped him with, as her prey. Verse 26 uses a military term as like victories over other people. And yet verse 27 says, Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The man doesn't die right away. 
Her house is the way to death. It's leading to death, not death itself. Commenting on this, man Alan Ross says, A man's life is not destroyed in one instant. It is taken from him gradually as he enters into a course of life that will leave him as another victim of the wages of sin. There's natural consequences. And sexual immorality destroys. Like, I think we can, we can see that pretty clearly, right? Like, there are natural things that happen with um, all kinds of sexually transmitted diseases and other things, right? There, Jesus said that there, any lust of the heart, he punishes. It destroys the loving relationship between spouses, even if it's before marriage builds a lack of trust and perhaps most dangerously says God avenges those who have been wronged. Like we talk about a, a spurned lover or an angry father going, to, going after the one who has hurt his child. God avenges those he cares about. Because, ultimately, the person someone rejects is God himself. Verse 7 through 8. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God's call is his expectation. He expects his people to be holy. As 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God wants his children to look like him. So, it says there, Therefore, whoever disregards this. The word disregard means to reject. Not not just like softly reject, it means to declare something invalid. You could, you could imagine it's, you know, when, when someone has your, um, your driver's license and you get pulled over maybe one time too many or there's something wrong and they come through and they actually either cut it in half or they take a little clipper and they punch a hole through it like right in the middle just to say this thing is invalid. You cannot use it. That's the idea. Someone is saying, I hear your standard, O God. But no, I don't want to do that. That's, that's ridiculous. And this are those who say, this doesn't apply to me. This is not just the ignorant. This is the rejecters. Make sense? And, and this is a problem because it says, whoever disregards this, This command, this will, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. 
as Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Luke 10, 16. Jesus is saying, like, if we reject his message, we are rejecting the Father. God's will should not be questioned. It is really sad and interesting that as our world becomes more accepting of sexual immorality, the more we deny the goodness of God's word, the Bible. Uh, Ligonier Ministries, uh, famously known from R.C. Sproul, he started the ministry. They got together with Lifeway to produce a biannual, every other year, is that biannual? There is every other year study on the state of theology where they go through and they do questions and they ask people what they believe all over. And they asked someone, asked people, do you agree that the Bible, like all other sacred writings, contains helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true? Out of their 3000 responders, 28 said I somewhat agree. 28% say I somewhat agree. 25% said I strongly agree. And 6% said not sure. Okay, hey, I, I understand that. Um, that's the world we live in. Um, but of those who go to church once a week, 20% of them said I somewhat agree. 15% said I strongly agree. of regular churchgoers agree that the Bible is not literally true. If you even compare that to the previous year, um, in from 20 or two years ago, 2020, that number has grown. Like this is smaller than currently, as the number has increased. More people two years later are saying the Bible is not true, and this should not be so. God's will should not be rejected because we need a moral standard. The world's coming up with one if we don't have one. And God has graciously said, this is what will help people. God's standard for holiness is given and the consequences for not doing so is displayed. I think we've seen that tonight. Um, And we have the blessing of not just condemning, but repenting of sexual sin and helping others to do so also. Some of you may be familiar with the Christian recording artist Jennifer Knapp, who was famous in the 90s, had a lot of records that were sold, many, I don't know what level of platinum, but she she was fairly well known. And she came out as being homosexual. And she was on Larry King. Larry King always did a great job of actually bringing people together to have a real debate. And she was having a discussion and debate with a pastor about whether homosexuality was acceptable. And she turns to him and says, you know, you're a sinner too, right? And of course, he has to admit, yes, I'm a sinner too. Says, then why are you judging me instead of me judging you? A powerful line. Like, how can you say that I'm wrong in my sin and you're right in your sin? And, And that is so important. Even when we're addressing this, 
is we are not saying, and this passage is not saying, that there are worse sinners than others. And that somehow homosexuality is a worse sin than pride or stealing or, you know, heterosexual sexual immorality. We're not categorized by God as being either better sinners or worse sinners. Instead, the key to all this, bless you, the key to this is whether we are repentant sinners or unrepentant sinners. God doesn't say here, oh, and if you've ever committed sexual immorality, you are never forgiven. His issue is, is not, he says, are those who disregard this, who reject it and say it's invalid. See, true Christianity hinges on repentance. Christians don't claim to be perfect people. Why would we need a savior if we were perfect people? Perfection comes in heaven. What we are is holy and different in our attempt to repent. We keep trying to say, God, I am sorry, I am wrong, and we take steps away from it. The danger that's laid out here in verse 8 and is revealed in people like Jennifer Knapp is when we say, I hear your standard, God, and I say no to it. Or I hear you say that this is not okay, and I'm going to choose to sin anyways. You better forgive me, God. That is a dangerous thing. Instead, we are called to be holy. And that means even admitting our sin. You know, there's hope for those who have lost themselves in sexual morality, whether it's yourself or a friend whether it's the past and something you still feel very guilty about, or whether it's something even you're currently embroiled in and you're fighting, it is found in the joy and the blessing of admitting it's wrong and turning to what say, what does Jesus say about this? What does Jesus say? And more importantly, what has Jesus done? Because Jesus didn't just come to condemn the world. He came to die in our place. And so every bad thing that we have done, every time we've rejected God's law, it was laid on him. He became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so that sanctifying work that takes place when someone has admitted they are wrong, they become a Christian, they still struggle. But as they admit continually that they're wrong, they seek to put off, to put on the self-control. They know the great blessing is Jesus gives us his righteousness. We are considered clean and pure in Christ. And as we continually try to repent, we are forgiven and made right. Like the, the impurities and the failures of the past are gone. The present struggles, while hard, can become looser and looser as we look to this call towards holiness, as we engage in self-control in little areas. So, my final encouragement is to consider what are ways I must grow in self-control? What are ways you must grow in self-control? It doesn't have to be something big. It can be something small. But God has called us to us, whether it's in the issue of sexual morality or just in the issue of eating a little bit better or of having a a disciplined time reading God's word. Self-control 
is a fruit of the Spirit. And as we seek to honor God, say, what is an area I must grow in self-control? To the glory of God. And may that help us in all the other sins. If you're struggling with a deep one, maybe pick just one thing. Maybe try fasting for days and just fasting for a day and use that time to pray and engage and say, Lord, use this to help me see how to fight the greater sin. Because we're choosing to say, I must not disregard what God said. I must listen and allow him to produce the results.